I think Inflection went out looking for a CEO and CFO team to parachute in because I was still doing the CFO job as well, you see. Inflection didn't and then really said to me, look, if you won't do it, then actually it's too risky for us. We're going to pull out of the deal. Hello and welcome to season two of The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. So I'm back with eight brand new conversations with the tech world's most inspiring founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Discovering what drives them, keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our lives too. And if you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to dig into the archives to see which of our earlier episodes leap out at you. Hopefully all of them will. I promise you heaps of fascinating stories and lots of very useful intel await. In this episode, I talked to the super sharp Stella Donahue, who really has earned her private equity stripes after taking Flex Global, the company she originally joined as a part-time CFO, through to no less than three PE exits in five and a half years. Having so many compressed and successful PE experiences in such a short time gives us a unique CEO's insight into partnering with private equity and driving value from that relationship. But before we get into all that, we'll cover off some of the other lives that Stella has lived in business, from winning the Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award at 17, to leaving her home in Ireland for a career in finance, and on to hotel management, including a stint at Claridge's as the finance director. We're dealing with the whims and needs of not just the super rich and famous, but also the potential targets of terrorism was all part of the job. She's authentic, empathetic, and super experienced, and exactly the kind of business leader you'd kill to have on your own team. Here she is, Stella Donahue. Enjoy. I'll start right at the beginning. So I just wondered, growing up, what was your earliest entrepreneurial memory? Oh, very early, actually. I set up a restaurant two days after I left school. So what had happened was I had been very interested in food and cookery at a very young age. This was encouraged by my mother and I went to work in restaurants in the summers when I was 15 and then I came up with this idea that actually in this particular town in Ireland there was no daytime restaurant, only an evening restaurant and pubs, so I would do a daytime restaurant. So I was planning this, I won't say with my family's support, but they weren't against the idea, but they just thought I was crazy. And then I entered a competition, which was actually the Young UK Entrepreneur of the Year and won the whole competition, which was very gratifying because also it gave me the money to start it up. And then literally I left school, I got on the train, I moved away and my restaurant opened two days later. And I had it for three years and then in fact I sold it on because I was then moving to London to continue my career in hotel management. So that was my early venture into business and in many ways the most exciting entry. Yeah. <laughs> it all went downhill from there on. <laughs> <laughs> so from the age of 15 were you planning it at the back of your mind? No I only planned it really from the age of 17. So mm. I had done this job in the restaurant for three summers and I was coming to the end of that and I was thinking oh well i quite like to keep coming back to this place but I had done the same job for three years I was the kind of number two chef in the kitchen and I wanted to do something different so I just thought well I'll do the daytime restaurant myself because the town did need it mm. but 
it never occurred to me as odd, whereas actually most people thought it was odd. <laughs> <laughs> Were your parents entrepreneurial? My father was a professor and a writer, right. and my mother was one of Ireland's first air hostesses when Aer Lingus started. Oh, wow. In later life, she was a teacher and a career guidance counsellor, so not an entrepreneurial microfiber, either in them or in anyone else in the whole family. I understand you quite a few brothers and sisters. Yeah, so there's seven brothers and sisters, so eight of us. Wow. And like my eldest brother, he was the Irish ambassador to the United Nations. He, he was an ambassador to Russia and a whole number of countries in his career. Wow. And then I had one working in the European Commission. One is a musician. She's a clarinetist. Another is a CTO in California. Mm. My youngest sister is quite a well-known writer, actually. She's published a lot. And she was actually shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And she was an Oscar nominee for a screenplay and that. So a lot of them are kind of in the arts. Yeah. But not one of them has ever gone into any kind of business that they've set up. And would have no aspiration to do that. A high-achieving family. How much do you think has that impacted you as your career has developed? Well, we were massively high-achieving family. And this was driven by my father, an extreme high-achiever in his field. And we were brought up in a very disciplined, academically-focused environment. So if you didn't have, you know, multiple degrees, you kind of didn't register in his approval ratings. <laughs> so... Even though I was perfectly good academically, I was not quite the top of the family. And that probably made me want to do other things because when you're being compared in school to you're not as good as your older sister and you're not as good as your younger sister, etc., you actually, I think you try and find something different that you are good at. So I do think that's probably why I steered totally away from academia and went into business. It's funny, it really did take a long time to get the approval ratings from my parents. My parents were horrified when I went into the hotel industry, for example. They saw that as being a kind of a get-your-hands-dirty, hard-working industry, and they couldn't understand it. Mm. I think the role where I first got a sign of approval from my father was um, I became finance director of Claridge's. And my father was quite a snob underneath it all, so when he saw me at Claridge's, he kind of thought oh, actually, this isn't that grubby after all. Mm. <laughs> and so I think we all kind of vied for the approval and it was a very hard race to be in because I was never going to win. So I suppose I went and did my own race <laughs> separately. So setting up a restaurant sort of straight from school and winning Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award by most people would be a big credit, but at the time... Your parents were not particularly plus by it. Didn't even feature really. And no, that was not a measure of success in their eyes. And why did you sell the restaurant? So you sort of three years in. And I mean, it's a hell of a exhausting and tough place to be, but fun. Well, I moved to London. So in Ireland at that time, really in the hotel industry, you moved on. The hotels weren't even very good in Ireland at that point. You definitely moved on. So I was going to university and hotel school and I had to go away for a year and I had a choice between Switzerland or I could have gone to London. And I chose London because in London you would get really good business experience in the hotels, where in Switzerland you'd spend your time in the restaurants and the kitchen. So at that stage I knew that the business side of it was what was interesting to me. Right. So I actually went to a very large hotel in London, which is a Copthorne Tara hotel, but it was owned by Aer Lingus. And I got a brilliant training there in the business end of the hotels, actually really interesting. 
So because I was moving to London, I sold the restaurant and then I actually stayed on in London because I decided at the end of that stint that I wanted to become an accountant, not because I wanted to practice as an accountant, but I, I was persuaded that accountancy was the best business training that I could have. So I joined Stoy Hayward at the time because they audited a lot of hotels. And I thought, well, if I really hate accountancy, at least I'll get to audit hotels and probably go into the hotel consultancy. Mm-hmm. So how long were you in hotels before you moved into accountancy? Well, really, straight after I finished my degree in hotel management, I then went into accountancy, but with a view to being in hotels. So then I qualified with Story Hayward and then I went back into hotels. So I went back and I worked for Hilton, I worked for Radisson, I worked for One Aldridge, I worked for Claridge's Savoy Group. Mm. And then at that point, I thought, well, you know, I'm in my early 30s. I've been finance director of Claridge's and the Connaught. And actually, I'm not going to learn an awful lot more by just going to the Dorchester next or to the Lanesborough. And generally, that was what was happening. It was the same group of finance directors just swapping jobs up and down Park Lane. And I just thought, well, I can't see much point in that. So I decided that I wanted to switch into something else, but actually found it really difficult because you're very much pigeonholed into hotels. Mm. So I went off to Cranfield and I did an MBA, thinking that was probably the best thing to do to broaden out my experience. So I did that. And then I, at that point, kind of set up on my own as a finance director, providing portfolio finance director services to small businesses. I would like to say businesses who didn't need a full-time CFO, but actually it was businesses who did need a full-time CFO, but couldn't afford one. (laughs) (laughs) And so... What that really gave me was um, I have a low boredom threshold and I don't like actually doing any one thing for long. And I found that I was Mm. moving jobs quite often in the hotel industry as a substitute for this kind of boredom thing. So I thought, well, rather than move jobs every two years, which you can do in your 20s, but you can't be doing it for the rest of your life. Mm. I thought, well, actually, if I have a number of small jobs rather than one big one, that would satisfy that. And it did, really. So I really enjoy portfolio-type careers because of that variety I got. But you must have had some amazing experiences spending your 20s and early 30s in hotels. You must have some yeah, really interesting stories from those days. Oh, I have probably three books worth, really. <laughs> I mean, most of the best ones were from carriages because the clientele is so bonkers and it was wealth that you've never seen before. It was an amazing time, actually, just to see how the other 5% live is just crazy. I still have memories of the Dalai Lama walking around the lobby in all his gowns and then a leather jacket on top of that and checking Richard Gere into his hotel room. And he was in his monk phase of like, oh, I don't need anything except a bed and a loaf of bread and some water. Yeah. So I was in a particularly belligerent mood with him. And so I was showing him to his penthouse suite and he was saying, oh, I just need a single bed. So I said, fine. And I brought him to the grottiest room in Claridge's. Now, even by Claridge's standards, there are some rooms that are not very attractive, like single room behind the lift, that kind of thing. So I brought him in there and said, well, would you like this instead? And he just said, oh, I don't want to put you through the trouble of moving me. I'll go back to the first room. (laughs) He scuttles back off to his penthouse suite, you know. But it was really good fun and very theatrical. Like It's a show that people are putting on at Claridge's and really interesting, but brutally hard work. They all are brutally hard work behind the scenes. I mean, there's no such thing as an eight-hour day in hotels. No such thing. 
it's fascinating but relentless i think it teaches you because not very well paid industry as you say and it's like super hard work so it really teaches you how to try and motivate people in non-economic and manage people in non-economic ways which i think probably stood you in good stead later on oh it teaches you to work hard and it also teaches you that if all else fails I could go back and earn a living serving dinners or something. And worse things have happened, you know. Did Glenn tell me that you once got shot at or something like that? No, I didn't actually get shot at, but I was duty manager when Benjamin Netanyahu was in the hotel and it was a very high security visit. And we had like police trained with guns on the building opposite on his windows in case there was an attack and basically had to clear his room. You couldn't have curtains or anything, anything to make it so that nobody could hide there and attack him, basically. But even still, despite all this, they decided that it was still too high a risk for him to be in the hotel. So they were going to spirit him out to some safe house up in Park Lane. But the whole point was not to let people know that he had been moved. So we had to go into the pretense that he was still in the hotel. So anyway, he gets out through the staff entrance out up Park Lane. And I'm the duty manager, so I'm still having to go through the motions that we've got this guy in the hotel. I do that, and then at a certain point I say... Actually, I'm going to go home now because he's been gone for three hours. And they said, well, no, you can't, because if you go home, we have to release the security bubble outside the hotel and therefore they'll know that he's gone. So you have to stay. I said, OK, well, I need to take a room. But the only room in the hotel was Netanyahu's room. So at this point, I had to go to bed in his room. I'm lying in the bed thinking this is nuts because the police with the guns were still there. There were no curtains. I just thought I will be shot at in this hotel room. So I did the only thing you could do, which was... The bathroom has no windows. And so I literally went into the bathroom and I took whatever bedding was left and all the towels because in Claridge's, each room had 26 towels. So I kind of lined the bath with towels and then lay in the bath for the night on the basis of nobody could actually shoot me. (laughs) (laughs) Through the bath. (laughs) Through the bath. But it's... Yeah, that was a rather nuts experience. But there were so many, I mean, I could be hours, usually with a glass of wine, telling people my Claridge's experience. So someday it'll come out in a book. So you then transition to kind of like pay for a quarter of an FD, but get a full FD's job. <laughs> and that is that what led you initially to meeting the founder of Flex? Yeah, absolutely. So I spent a number of years, like about seven or eight years, doing that very happily. And one day I was on the treadmill. I was with a personal trainer and he said to me, have you got any free time? And I said, I do actually, yeah, because I've just finished with one particular company. And he said, oh, because the woman who was on the treadmill before you, she needs someone to help her out with the finances. So I said, oh, well, okay, I'll go and have a chat with her. And that turned out to be the founder of Flex Global. So I joined the business just on a part time. I think I was supposed to be there a day a week. I broke my rule very early on. I had a rule about not investing in the client's businesses. So I broke that really early on. And I invested in the business and then she wanted to sell the business. So I said I would obviously help her sell the business. So we sell the business, but I didn't expect to be staying on. And at this point, I had had to pretty much give up most of my other clients because, it, you know, a sale is pretty full on. But then inflection persuaded me to stay on and run the business, which I hadn't been expecting at all. But actually, I really enjoyed it. So I stayed on. I gave up my portfolio career. I committed completely to Flex Global. 
and I ended up staying there until, well, I went through the inflection period of ownership, then the Bridgepoint Development Capital, and then I left at the point where we sold it to Vitruvian in 2016. So it's quite, when you first met her, the business was in need of support, wasn't it? It was desperate. The turnover was about four million. She told me it was break even, but actually when I sorted out the finances, it had lost significantly. It had lost about a half a million that year. So it was a total turnaround situation. I mean, very close to insolvency for a significant period of time, which is actually why I invested at one point was literally to help pay the payroll. So yeah, it was a big turnaround. And then we were very lucky. We won a very large Pfizer project. We persuaded them to pay us up front for big chunks of it and it enabled us to clean up the balance sheet and that because otherwise actually the business was unsaleable. So we did the turnaround and then we were able to sell it. And we were very pleased with the price at that time because we had no idea what it was going to turn into over the next two exits. It was, you know, transformed. And Flex Global, for those that don't know, it was doing clinical records. Yeah, it's document management for clinical trials. So it was a lot of scanning pieces of paper, attaching metadata, indexing, filing. At the time, it was almost fully paper-based. We were making about 10% of the revenue on software and about 90% on services at that point. Everything was based in the UK. We were also just providing staffing as well to pharmaceutical companies. It had actually started as a recruitment and staffing business. Over time, it morphed into much more of a software business, so probably about 70% software revenues, 30% services. We really developed our own software, and it went very well. It was a very successful turnaround, really. Obviously, you had to put some money in to keep you know, a bit of the cash flow alive, but were you attracted to people you were working with or the industry? Why did you start to focus more of your time there? It was in the industry, because actually I didn't really know anything about the pharma sector at that point. I think it was the fact that I could really see scope for improvement. So I could see all kinds of ways where I could really make a big difference to this business. And I felt that quite a lot of relatively small tweaks would make an enormous amount of difference. And they did. And I've kind of since then, I've always really applied that logic of you can do a lot of small things particularly around pricing and productivity of staff and that, you know, you're not looking for enormous jumps, but actually you do quite a lot of tweaks and they can make a really big difference in the end. So I suppose it was that and the fact that the founder, she pretty much gave over control of it to me and more or less said, you've got the go ahead to do what you want, really. And I really enjoyed that, actually. I like the whole turnaround experience. And then I loved the sale process, the exit process. If I look at a business life cycle, I love the exit process more than anything. Yeah. Because I love the whole thing of getting the business ready for sale and making sure that you've ironed out all the little niggles and that you've kind of shown all the best light of it. You're really organized so that when they come to do due diligence, you've answered every question, you've got everything ready. And what really stuck with me was people focus on, you know, increasing the revenue and the EBITDA and Yes, you will sell the business for more if you do that. But actually, if you can increase the multiple as well, you get double the value out of it. And I really focused on, through the various exits, all the things I could do to increase the multiple. And that was really satisfying, actually. So you came to the exit for the first time. You'd basically been empowered explicitly. It wasn't like you are the CEO, but effectively, if you look back, you were kind of doing all the CEO-type roles without the title. Yeah. 
and then you went through an exit and I suppose you were considering all exit options but effectively ended with inflection at private equity. Pretty much. You see it never occurred to me that I would stay because I assumed that that was the end of the journey and that it should be somebody from the pharma services sector of which I really had no experience. So I think what happened was I, th- I think inflection went out looking for a CEO and CFO team to parachute in because I was still doing the CFO job as well you see and various people came along and either they didn't like it or we didn't like them <laughs> and and also I think it's quite hard when it's a really niche business it's quite risky I think to put new people into it and bear in mind the founder was leaving straight away and I really was the one with all the in-depth knowledge of the business and if I were to leave straight away as well that could have been problematic so It never occurred to me that I would do it, but I think Inflection tried to find people, didn't, and then really said to me, look, if you won't do it, then actually it's too risky for us. We're going to pull out of the deal. This filled me with dread. I just thought, oh, I thought I didn't want to do it, but I just thought to myself, I can't see this deal fall apart now because, you know, we had gone through so much and mentally the founder had moved on. So if it had all fallen apart, it really would have been disastrous for the business. So I innocently thought, oh, well, I'll do it. And then if I don't like it in a few months time, I'll just tell them I don't like it. But of course, that's not quite how it works with private equity. (laughs) But actually, I did like it. I really enjoyed it. Very soon after we did the deal, we opened the US office. And I did that literally five weeks after we completed with inflection, we opened up in Philadelphia. So that was really interesting to do. And then later on, also we opened up in Poland and that was transformational for the business. So both those are major corporate steps that a number of PE-backed businesses are looking into. But before I dig into those, just simply the succession. So had really the succession kind of already happened because the founder had effectively stood back so far that you were doing the job in all but title? Or did you feel like, okay, now it's a changing the guard? Oh, no, it was a changing the guard because even though behind the scenes I felt like I was running it, Mm. in reality, I wasn't the front person at all. Like she was the front person right up to the end. Right. And... In fact, I do remember having to stand up in front of the business and say that I was their new CEO and the look of shock actually across the business because I don't think they really saw what I was doing behind the scenes and they just thought this is the finance person coming in. They never saw me as part of the business. I mean, I think they were shocked that the founder was leaving, but I don't think I was the natural successor in their eyes. So that's a huge amount of change management culturally in the business pretty much on day one. Did you just work through that logically? Was there a plan that you had in terms of how you'd approach that? My biggest worry was that because I had gone in as the finance person and the business had been needing to go through a turnaround and I'd had to make all this cost cutting and I'd had to make people redundant and do all the unpleasant things. I mean, there were various nicknames for me and one was Fred the Shred. <laughs> so I had a bit of a an uphill battle to get over that. So I hadn't really, this sounds terrible now, but I hadn't really taken the time to get to know the individuals because it's almost like I'm slightly afraid to because I don't know whether they'll still be here in the future. And because I was juggling other clients as well, I was doing a lot of work in the evenings and weekends and all that. And I kind of didn't really take part in the day-to-day life of the business. So my nervousness was, oh, my God, what am I going to do with these people? Because like, 
The people side of things was not at the time my preference at all. So I made two commitments. One was that I would no longer walk around the building with a calculator in my hand, (laughs) (laughs) which I had always had the inclination to do because, you know, I never liked to be far from a calculator. And the other that I really had to get to learn people's names. But of course, some people I had been seeing around the corridors for two years. So it was a bit late to say, what's your name? So I got all the photos. You know the way like HR will have the photos and the names. So I would try and memorise people's names. And then if I was talking to someone and I didn't know who they were, I'd go back to my office and try and find them on the picture graph and say, "Okay, that was John, you see. And it's funny because really when I left the business, the bit I missed was the people. So I really did make that transition, not just for the sake of business, but I actually made it genuinely. I really enjoyed the people side of it in the end, but it took a while to shake off the shred skin yeah (laughs) (laughs) so going to america within weeks that's um normally something that people procrastinate over for years so how did you identify that we were doing it before inflection bought us Mm. so it was happening anyway and we literally looked at where our customers were based and they were based everywhere from Boston down to North Carolina. Then I did a bit of research on which state was best from a tax point of view to operate and not so much tax, but labor cost, property cost, came up with Pennsylvania, contacted a few real estate agents. One of them responded to me. So I went over on a plane and met with her and told her what we needed and drove around lots of empty office buildings and chose the one and set up the whole thing, really. It probably took about four months to set it up. You can do these things quite quickly if you put your mind to it. The good thing was we kind of knew our US-based customers would give us work because they had always wanted us to be in the US because they didn't like sending paper documents to the UK. So we knew that as soon as we were ready for it, they would give us work. And it grew fast. The first intake was 20 people. It didn't help that three days before the office was opening, the person we had appointed as general manager and who had interviewed all these people, signed their contracts and was ready to start on Monday morning. He dropped out of the job on Friday night and he sent me a text message and said, I've decided it's not the job for me. That was really annoying. So I literally had to fly over on the Sunday and be there on the day that we opened just to have somebody there. But we started with 20 people and I think when I left Flex, I think we had about 85 people in that office. So that was a successful office. And they're still there. They're still in the same location and everything there. And Poland, was that a tech thing? No, interestingly. So Poland was actually to prevent us going to India. So the board at the time, which was Bridgepoint, they came up with this idea that we should open in India and have a low-cost location. And I just knew that going to India would kill the business because we were a very stretched, hands-on management team. We could just about deal with the US time zone, but we didn't want to add in India. And also it was quite a heavily female management team because pharma services often just gets a lot of females. And I just knew people didn't have the capacity to be going off to India for two, three, four weeks at a time. So I persuaded the board that India would be a mistake and that we should look to Eastern Europe instead. And then I literally put a pin in a map. So I narrowed it down to Poland on the basis that Bridgepoint had an office in Poland and therefore they could help us out. And then I just did the same desktop research of which city would be most appropriate, contacted a few people, went over there and met the right people and found the right office and set up and 
again started with 20 people and i think when i left flex i think it was at over 100 people so it's wow poland has become the future of flex really and the tech i think you said at the start the relationship was like 10 percent was software and 90 percent services but you kind of inverted that relationship as you built the business yeah so we really had to do that but actually the tech was done in the uk because we actually acquired the business that developed our tech so we outsourced initially to this business and when Bridgepoint came in, they said, that's quite a risk to be outsourcing the development of your tech to a small business that wasn't the most financially sound business. So they said, it's probably a good idea to look at buying it. So we bought the business and integrated it into Flex Global. And it's been a very successful move and it is now still there. And so that was over in Colchester. They're still in Colchester. And then when we had opened up Poland, we looked at recruiting techies in Poland But actually, it was really difficult to do because the kind of technology Flex Global had was not bleeding edge technology. And if you try recruiting techies in Eastern Europe, first of all, there's not always a saving. And they all want to work on the real cool apps and stuff. They didn't actually want to be working on what we were doing. So we tried, but there was no advantage. We actually found it better to recruit them in Colchester. So... (laughs) We continued recruiting in Colchester. It just didn't work. You have to be a tech business to recruit them in Poland. You can't just be a document processing business that has a few techies. They have no interest in that. They have their choice of places to work, especially now when they can work for anywhere remotely. So, yeah, that part didn't work. So you've gone from like being an accidental CEO, never having planned to be, and now you're moving into areas of geographic expansion and tech decisions. How do you go about approaching something you don't understand or don't have domain knowledge? Because you also talked about always anticipating somebody from the pharma sector to run the business. How do you think about all that now? I mean, obviously, there were loads of people within the business with pharma experience. So I'm never afraid to ask the stupid question. So that was fine. And, you know, I had a very close working ally who really was the salesperson of the business and she was pharma services through and through. So that was fine. I think technology wise, tech was the hardest thing because a project like opening in another location, nobody is born to that. You just work that out in a project plan. You work out what needs to be done and you talk to whoever you can and get all kinds of input. Some of it's useless, some of it's really good, but you don't need special skills to do that. On the tech side, one of the things that Inflection insisted on was that we recruit a CTO. So we did get a CTO in and really that started the transformation of tech in the business. But it's like everything else. You just research what you can. You ask the right people. You just plan it out like any project. But I certainly had a lot more confidence opening offices in different locations than on the tech side of things. So like hiring a CTO is also a quite daunting prospect for a lot of non-techie CEOs. So how did you know what to look for and get conviction in that? I mean, that was difficult, actually, mainly because we weren't really a tech business. So actually attracting a CTO to the business was hard enough. So when I say we, it's mainly myself and Karen Redding, who was the sales business development person. And we did find that many of them were very patronizing. They were all male. They came in and kind of said, don't you worry, I'll sort this out. They were quite arrogant. I think one of them even told me that he'd be quite happy to be the CEO of the business as well. And it's like, what? Yeah, stand back. So we interviewed lots of people. We had a good headhunter on the job. We involved 
inflection at the time. Mm. But yeah, it's trial and error, really. I mean, CTOs, I think, are quite hard to interview because they're harder to reference than CFOs, I think. But like all senior people, I think it's really difficult to be sure you've got the right people. It's like now, the biggest issue I have in many of the businesses I work with is chief product officer. It's like, it's such a broad job. And there's so many different flavors of it. How do you know you've actually got the one that you need in the business? And CTO at the time was similar, that you kind of think that they're going to be real techie people, but they're usually not that techie, actually. You know, they're not always sitting at home at night developing software code. How many years did you work with the business before you sold it to Inflection? Well, I joined part-time in 2008 and we sold it in 2011 to Inflection. Yeah. So you kind of did 12 years with the business. I know, no, eight years. Three exits in eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Because we sold it in 2011 to Inflection, 2014 to Bridgepoint. And then at the end of 2016, we went to Vitruvian. And to sustain the growth that happened in that nine 10 year period could have been nothing like you would have imagined at the start so what was the secret to that you always kind of reinventing or was just the market squarely behind the business i mean the market was good but i think yeah the whole transformation to predominantly software opened up a whole new market for us but it was mainly each time we would win a big project because in pharma services if you get a project from pfizer or astrazeneca or something it can be massive So, for example, we got a project during Bridgepoint days and it was an AstraZeneca project and it was supposed to be two million documents or two million pages were supposed to be processed. But actually, when they sent all the pages, it was eight million pages, not two million. So we then obviously explained to them that the price is per page and therefore, you know, this is a very large project. And their only concern was, well, are you going to be able to do it? in the same period of time. And we said, yes, we will, but we're actually going to have to charge you even more because we're going to have to bring in overtime and contractors and this and that. So it ended up that this was this enormous project. And each time we had these big projects, we kind of never let ourselves go back down again. So we ramped up and expanded the staff, the premises, everything for each project. But then we would furiously build the sales pipeline because we didn't want to go backwards. And that's how it worked, really. After the first year with inflection, we never went backwards after that. We just kept growing. And then I was really, I'm quite tight with money and costs and that. So I made sure that we were extremely profitable. Yeah. And then you said it was 4 million revenue when you first joined. What was the shape of the business when you eventually left? I think it was about 25 million revenue and about just under 9 million EBITDA. Wow, phenomenal. Congratulations. Well, it was a team effort. And then leaving, talk me through the succession of yourself and stepping back. How did you decide and how did you go about it? Well, I definitely wanted to leave. I felt it really needed a pharma person to take it to the next level. I felt it needed a US-based person. And I like businesses up to about the kind of 20 million turnover. But beyond that, I don't think I'm the best place to run them. So we first of all recruited a US-based CEO in advance. We then recruited a UK-based CFO. And I was very, very detailed in my handover to them. I mean, it went on for months and months. I was trying to detach myself from day-to-day operations. Not very successfully, but that was the theory. But I would do one-off projects like opening in Poland and things like that, or the acquisition of the software business, I would do those things that weren't always being repeated so that I tried as much as possible 
that when I would leave that I wasn't integral to the business. In fact, I think I probably was, but I tried not to be. I also very much focused on the exit process because, of course, that was my third exit of the business. So I knew everything about the business. I knew all the pitfalls. I knew the skeletons, etc. So the US-based CEO continued on, the UK-based CFO. They then brought in a UK-based COO. So all these people, I had kind of been doing those jobs. The part that was really surprising to me was that I had assumed that the new buyers would want me to stay on for quite a period of time, but actually they didn't, which suited me fine. But in hindsight, I would question their judgment on that. So they said to me, well, you can go in two weeks. And I said, oh, happy days. That's fine with me because I'd got a completely clean exit from the business financially. So... I was delighted. But in fact, what happened was a week later, I fell into a pothole and I broke my shoulder and my ankle. Wow. And it was really quite painful and I was in hospital and that. So actually, I never even did my two weeks handover. I did about four days handover. And then by the time I was actually able to go back into the business, it had cracked on. So it was just like, oh, okay. But it was quite an anticlimax. Like you've sold the business for the third time. You think you're thrilled with it, but then... You're sitting at home on the couch with a broken ankle and broken shoulder. And you think, honestly, you really think that's all you'd ever wanted. And yeah. it makes you realise the whole thing about if you don't have your health, forget it. Yeah. It's um, a hell of a journey. Most people do, well, one maybe two exits but to do three exits in like such short order so it would have been five and a half years wow five and a half yeah so you must have been ninja skilled at exiting how did each exit i guess developed or was different from the other and then also how you learned and became sort of master of that process yeah i mean the first time round, when we were exiting to inflection putting it politely we didn't have a lot of choice mm. now we were thrilled to get inflection we were very lucky but when inflection were kind of saying we're not so sure about this and you'll have to stay on if we continue with this process the reality was we didn't have other buyers at that point they'd all gone away so the power was very much with inflection and that was quite concerning then the second time round we were obviously much better prepared so I had kept uh, detailed notes about really every question that had come up in the whole due diligence process that caused any angst or difficulty about answering it or took a long time to get the information and I literally had a list of these things and so I was much better prepared and the next time was a considerably more competitive process but still I would say if you look at the balance of power first time round it was kind of the buyer was about 80% and we were about 20% second time round it was more like 50-50 so we had interest we had more interest but it was you wouldn't have wanted your main buyer to walk away and then the third time round was the most incredibly fast-paced and well-organised process. So we had engaged very good advisors and they had drawn up a six-month Gantt chart of what would happen. And, and we stuck to that religiously and so did they. And in the end, I think we actually came in a week early on the whole thing. It was really competitive. In the final round offers, I think we still had like, 10 or 12 buyers in the final round. They submitted their bids on a Monday morning by 10 o'clock and we decided on the successful bidder 
by 12 noon and we said but you must complete by Friday and they did so we had proactively done all the due diligence effectively ourselves so they really had only four days to do top-up due diligence some of them had been doing top-up at risk but we did we completed the whole thing and it's because I really was super organized about the whole process I knew exactly what to do what was coming what needed to be done and because I was exiting I was really able to focus totally on the process but I had literally spent from the first day of the previous ownership period preparing for this time so preparing for exit to me is massively important and I was ticking off all the issues that had arisen previously I was keeping the data room so I had a data room permanently so it was a military campaign and we ended up with a fantastic result in a very competitive situation. And I think it's why I love the exit process so much is you can actually have a really big impact on the valuation by focusing not just on the top and the bottom line, but on the multiple that you're getting and making it so organized that you're running the process, you're giving the information out and you're ready to answer the question before they've even asked the question. Even with that speed, you know, there would have been investors that you would have naturally preferred or you and the wider team would have felt more culturally aligned to were you able to persuade them to come through at pace yeah and that's because we had excellent advisors and we also engaged with liberty corporate finance which we had never used before and that was to assist the management team who were staying on to compare all these different deals because they were of quite different shapes so actually, that was something that I remember thinking, God, that's an awful lot of money for that kind of advice. But actually, <laughs> I do think it got us over the line. Yeah. It was well worth it. We also spent money and time preparing management presentation really well. Mm -hmm. So we spent days, literally days in at Bridgepoint and other places having trial runs, answering every question that you could possibly answer. And I wasn't in the management presentations because I was exiting. So I was actually asking all the difficult questions <laughs> just to prepare them. I mean, we were so prepared that we just went for it and we had a very good result with it. And so you said a few things which have been sort of really interesting about like a low boredom threshold. Mm. Strangely enough, I relate to some of them. I wonder if it's a background experience in hospitality. And then I think from that, the hospitality probably comes a lot of you know, rolling your sleeves up and really getting stuck in and being prepared to do the hard yards. So I just wondered how those experiences translate into your management style. Yeah, I mean... Certainly in terms of the rolling up your sleeves, getting the jobs done, that's very much what is typical in hospitality. And it just means you're efficient, you get on, you do things. Like you mentioned earlier about, you know, a project like opening up an office in another location. That to me is very similar to planning a function or, or anything is you just itemize exactly what needs to be done. You work it out, you work out what's most important, you tick it off. That to me is the easy side of it. The low boredom threshold, I always focused on try to do the day job in the shortest possible time. So this was particularly relevant, I think, when I was CFO. You've always got your day job of VAT returns and management accounts and board pack and all that. Try and do that in the shortest possible time so that you can then do the interesting projects. And I was always the one sticking up my hand to do the projects because I loved the projects, mm. particularly if they were a bit different to the day job. I just loved those things. So I, I would try and aim to do my job in about 40% of the time so that I would have 60% of the time to do the projects. And I've never been in a business where we didn't have 
projects or interesting things to look at. I, I've never been in a real, let's just do business as usual for the next five years. That's not been a feature of the businesses I've been involved in. And in terms of like rolling your sleeves up, uh, I think I might have heard you might have rolled your sleeves up a bit too much at one stage. Yeah. I mean, in the early days, I was known to be moving documents around in the back of my car. My car got all wrecked from boxes being lifted in and out. But yes, I did economise a little bit too much sometimes. We had opened up our new office in about four miles from our current one and we were moving documents and the documents which have to be in very controlled storage conditions and I got a quote from a very reputable firm of movers and it was to me a very large sum of money so instead I got kind of cheapy and son to come and do it but instead they went to the pub for lunch and they basically one of them got extremely drunk and they had a fight in the pub and when they came back to continue moving the documents the one who had consumed six pints over lunch decided that he was going to drive off in the van in a huff it was all full of documents but he hadn't closed the doors at the back so he drives off six pints in him and we see this trail of documents (laughs) on the road and boxes tumbling out and it was just my life literally stood still and you can imagine how we had to recover the damage from that it was horrific because there are some things I've always been like you know watch the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves there are some times where you just have to pay to do it properly and I, I think I really learned from that one it's funny with company money I'm really really careful but yet with my own money, I'm quite gung-ho. I mean, I will, I will buy houses in less time than someone spends yeah. buying a pair of shoes. Yeah. But with company money, it was always very different. And it took me a long time to learn that sometimes you do have to pay for quality, actually. Yeah. If I was to criticise myself looking back, I'd say sometimes I should have just spent more. I think that's often the case in private equity, particularly so aware of the capital value of a pound of profit. And mm. you tend to multiply it. I rarely know of anyone that hired people that were too good or too expensive, but I know so many people that have hired not quite good enough and a bit cheap and regretted it. Mm. Do you ever pause and reminisce to go, you know, in 10 years is such a short period of time, you know, you've gone from running on a treadmill, minding your own business, 10 years later to three private equity exits and global business. It's a phenomenal twist of fate, isn't it? Yeah, it was pure random chance and I was very lucky. But I think when I got the opportunity, I absolutely gave it 100%. It just shows you, though, how much is random chance and that actually when it happens to you, you just have to put everything at it and just make the very best out of it. And for me, what I've really enjoyed is that after Flex Global, so after my third exit, Mm. it really opened up the whole world of ongoing private equity to me. And I mean, as I said, I was sitting at home on the couch, not able to walk. And that's when, you know, Bridgepoint came along and said, we'll actually come and work with us in the fund and be an operating partner for the fund. And I wouldn't have probably even thought of that. And that's opened up a whole new era, really, for me of non-exec and chair roles in private equity-backed businesses. And it's just take advantage of what comes along, really. Yeah. And then personal ambitions now? Are you goal setter? You know, it's funny. For someone who's very organised and... At work, I'm very kind of logical and process-driven. Actually, personally, I've always got the best out of not planning things because I think had I planned things, I actually wouldn't have been in the situations that have worked out the best for me. So 
I tend not to plan that far ahead. And of course, now that I'm committed to a number of PE-backed businesses, you're committed for the investment cycle. You're, you know, you're not free to go off and just decide you don't want to work anymore or do something different. So I find it very hard to kind of think, what will I want to do in five years' time? So if I look at all the, the businesses I'm involved with now, and if you say to me, well, yeah, but in five years' time, when they've all exited, will you actually take on a whole new lot for the next five years? I don't know that yet, but I kind of don't feel the need to plan that yet. Yeah. I just kind of, I do what interests me. And if I come across a business that interests me and I like the people, then I'm much more inclined to say yes mm. than no, really. But I don't go out looking for particular types of roles. I just, I see what comes along. So um, just wrap up with a few short fire questions. So do you have a favourite book that you turn to for inspiration or um, one you'd recommend? But the one I've been kind of coming back to recently is The Lean Startup, mm. Eric Ries. I think that's really interesting. The whole kind of concept of five iterations of asking why usually gets you back to the root cause of things. And I do like that. Whereas, you know, you, you can do so much of constantly working out what the software should be before you actually test it with the customers. So this is a new way of looking at it. And that's the book I'm enjoying at the moment. And is anyone that's inspired you in your career, either sort of directly or kind of larger in life character? This probably isn't very politically correct, but do you remember that couple, Judith and Fergus Wilson, who bought like a thousand properties in Ashford? Oh, I do remember this now. Yeah, this is about 10 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, well, because my other interest is property investment and they were doing that at the time. And I just remember being really inspired by them. I didn't like what materialised about some of their methods, but I liked the fact that these two people who started out like anyone else, just let's buy to let a few houses, but they weren't afraid to scale it and they did it properly and they did it mathematically. They literally bought more or less from a spreadsheet and they scaled up to well over a thousand properties and focused it on one particular area. I just really admired the single-mindedness and the fact that they weren't afraid to scale and they were doing it quickly. I always had an aspiration to have 20 properties, but they had over a thousand and actually they weren't any different to the rest of us. Yeah. They didn't start off with a fortune to spend, you know? Yeah, that sort of grind, you know, the sort of um, simplification grind, repeat, repeat, repeat. I think it's one of those things that's most underrated in business. People get caught in the glamour. But it's actually yeah. the day-to-day, -day, little bit tightening, little bit tightening, little bit tightening. Constantly tweaking and yeah. doing the thing yeah. that's worked Compounding already. Benefits. Yeah. What was your favourite aspect of being a PE or being a CEO or PE CEO? What was the bit you most enjoyed? I loved the challenge, actually, and the fact that I knew they would always ask the question, well, that's all very well, but how can we do it faster? Or if we throw twice the money at it, what will we achieve? And so I always really enjoyed actually answering that question before they had asked that question. So knowing that they would ask those questions made me better at planning and working out those things. And sometimes you can't throw twice the money at it and get there twice as fast. But usually their questions would lead to something extra that you could be doing. And I always liked that we had exactly the same goals. We knew exactly what we all wanted out of it. And that kind of four to five year investment cycle worked very well with my boredom threshold. So that's about as far ahead as I yeah, can look yeah. is five years. One thing I found recently is that sometimes businesses, 
they think the private equity investor is more or less going to tell them what to do and tell them their strategy. But that was never the case with us. Is we never expected or wanted that from them. We just almost wanted them to say, yeah, that's fine, after we tell yeah. them what we were going to do. And is there any advice you'd have for succeeding a founder? Because that was something you tackled earlier in your career. I mean, I do think there's this whole thing of who was the founder and who wasn't the founder. But actually, it's you're all just kind of custodians of the business for a period of time. And you will always do it different to the founder. But in many ways, it could be better because the founder often had particular reasons why it was set up in that way. So I do think you have to respect the founder. You have to ask the history and kind of absorb the history for a while. The only time where I think you can come in and just change things immediately is if the business is in severe danger of going bust. Then you have to act quickly. But other than that, I think you just have to listen and learn, but you don't have to replicate the same things and and you can do things differently and people move on and they you know they won't always be thinking about the founder yeah well stella thank you You've been really generous thank you really really appreciate it it's very kind no problem thank you i think stella is incredible and while she was an accidental ceo being in the right place at the right time i believe it was simply a matter of when not if What she's faced during her career are some of the biggest challenges that any PE CEO could ever wish to face. She's transformed a service business into a software business. She's conquered not one, but three international markets. And she's clearly understood and mastered the ability of driving value creation, not just from operational performance, but from positioning the business and its business model within its market to generate a premium valuation. And to wrap it all up, she's done three exits in five and a half years, the time it would normally take for just one exit. That in itself is mind-blowing, but to have done that as somebody who was effectively brought in to sort out the finances and with no previous experience is quite astonishing. My hunch is, as she never planned to do it, she wasn't in awe of the ascent. She hadn't overthought it, and she broke down each and every step systematically by simply putting her mind to the individual challenges and mastering them one by one. And she's done that with a combination of dry wit and industrious experience, moulded on the journey between the 18-year-old startup restaurateur and taking cover from potential terrorists in Benjamin Netanyahu's bathroom. It goes to show you that hard work and dedication and a methodical process-orientated step-by-step approach can make a daunting journey achievable. If you enjoyed listening to that conversation and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. Bye for now.